0: Okay, sorry for the late end and the late start for this. Let's uh, get rolling here for the membership class. So we're continuing in the Church Covenant, and we have the Shorter Catechism. I don't have a handout today, I'm sorry about that, Uh, but basically if you have the copy of the Church Covenant that was given to you, you'll be able to look at that, and if you have a Shorter Catechism, which was also given to you, you can look at that. So... Let's start with prayer. Father, I ask that you would bless this time, that you would help us to uh, consider covenanting with wisdom. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, so the homework was read and consider questions 39 to 81 in the Shorter Catechism and vows 7 through 9. So I'm going to read vows 7 through 9. All right, so vow 7. Do you promise Do you promise to glorify God by seeking the knowledge of the truth for yourself and for your household? by diligently engaging in private worship and household worship, both of which should be daily and should ordinarily include partaking of the scriptures, prayer, and the singing of psalms, keeping the Lord's Day, observing the appointed sacraments, and attending to the call of the church to gather for the worship of God and for the government of the church. Thou 8. Do you promise to glorify God by seeking to act according to the knowledge of the truth as revealed in the moral law, which is the whole duty that God requires of man, is summarized by the two great commandments, is summarily comprehended in the Ten Commandments, and is explained accurately in the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Vow nine. Do you promise to glorify God by seeking to spread the knowledge of the truth by engaging in and supporting evangelism and discipleship in the whole counsel of God, providing a Christian education for your household, tithing to the church, and cooperating with others, in the church, in order to fill the earth with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Okay, so, let's jump back to seven. So the idea for seven, we're categorizing this general duty to pursue the knowledge of God, to pursue the knowledge of the truth. And the idea is that you will also seek to do that in your household, according to your station. And so, doing that diligently there are particular manifestations of that and the idea is not that this is an exhaustive list of the things to be done to pursue the knowledge of God, to grow in the knowledge of the truth but the idea is that these are things that are specific to be emphasized so that these help for the church government to hold people accountable and to have things to ask about and to say these are duties that are expected so you know what you're getting into and these are duties that we'll, you'll be asked about. Um, and so my, my philosophy of ministry, and I think it's the biblical philosophy of ministry, is to say that my duty is to equip you to govern yourself and for heads of house to govern their households. The, ha- the heads of house are pastors of their own homes. That the lowest public office in the church is head of household, and that's where votes are carried. And so the representation of the household by the head of household in the public assembly shows that sort of use of authority in the voting and the speaking occurs. And so the wife has a station in her house as the queen of the house, as the number two. And so the team together of the husband and wife are able to, as two witnesses, speak to the people under their authority in the house. And there's a dividing of authority, and there's a delegating of authority, but they're both office holders in the household. And so the household is where most of the discipleship should occur. And so private worship is necessary for the feeding of your own soul. Household worship is necessary to be able to wash your wife in the word and to be able to wash your children in the word to be able to feed them, sorry, the washing the word of the wife and the feeding uh, of the children with the word. And then the elements of that worship, word, prayer, praise, the idea of the Lord's Day as a day devoted to the worship of God with our public ministry that occurs on it, and so the idea of the day being a day for the pursuit of the knowledge of God, leisure from ordinary work and recreation so that you can grow in the knowledge of God. And the appointed sacraments are given for the sake of re-covenanting to pursue the knowledge of God. And there's a entry point and a renewal point. The entry point of baptism and the renewal point of the Lord's Supper is a re-swearing that occurs every time. Those are visible covenantal actions. And so then the call of the church to assemble is for the use of the public means so that gives order and so the calling of the church also to assemble for government to deal with matters of government and if you are either to sit on that council because you're a voting member of it or you've been called to appear you've been summoned to appear to give testimony for some cause those are the reasons you might be called by an assembly for government so those are the the things that are called out specifically as means. Every ordinance of God, every commandment of God is meant to help us to grow in the knowledge of God. Whatever God commands us to do, it accords with growing in the knowledge of God. It supports that. So the Shorter Catechism, uh, I think it's 80... Well, Give me a second, I'll find it. Question 88. What are the outward and ordinary means whereby Christ communicates to us the benefits of redemption? The outward and ordinary means whereby Christ communicates to us the benefits of redemption are his ordinances, especially the word, sacraments, and prayer, all which are made effectual to the elect for salvation. Now, the word, sacraments, and prayer are not the only ordinances of of Christ. So here, especially, is being used in the way we would normally use it in modern language, which is, you know, and in a special way, or in a distinctively useful way, or powerful way, or whatever. So all the ordinances of Christ are the outward and ordinary means of grace. So, question: So, vow seven. Are there questions, objections, any testing that anybody wants to push on to me about it? Is there anything I can answer? So there was a handout uh, with them before. I did not do a printout again today, so I'm sorry for that. I can share a digital version with you if you. Uh,
1: yeah, or
0: if they're are they in the western They're not. They're not in there. So are. Uh, uh, we wrote them. They're for our church covenant ah, locally. Okay. Um, so I can share the PDF with you. You, you, do you have access to it? Or are you able to share it? Great. Is it do you have, Yeah, do you have the PDF or a Word version? Or what do you, okay, great. Yeah, just do that. Thank you very much. Who wouldn't mind running up and giving him your email address real quickly so he can share it? Now I know your middle name. Okay, while it's being shared, I'm going to read it out loud again, so if there's any other questions about it, it can be we can start on that. So do you promise to glorify God by seeking the knowledge of the truth for yourself and for your household, by diligently engaging in private worship and household worship? So there's a parenthetical, and it says both of which should be daily and should ordinarily include partaking of the scriptures. Prayer and the singing of psalms. End parenthetical. So I'm going to reread with the skipping of the parenthetical. Do you promise to glorify God by seeking the knowledge of the truth for yourself and for your household, by diligently engaging in private worship and household worship, keeping the Lord's Day, observing the appointed sacraments, and attending to the call of the church to gather for the worship of God and for the government of the church? has been shared. So there are there questions about the meaning of that or challenges to that it's a legitimate oath? Okay. So is everyone here persuaded of the duty of daily private worship, including psalm singing, scripture reading, and prayer? Okay. Is everyone here persuaded of the daily duty of that as a household thing? Okay. Is everyone persuaded that the Lord's Day is the Christian Sabbath, that the first day of the week is the Christian Sabbath? That's normally where all the fighting happens. So, I don't know what to do with myself. Maybe, well, probably... We
1: it from Saturday.
0: <laughs> 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 okay, so then, are there um, any disagreement about baptism and the Lord's Supper being the appointed sacraments, baptism to be administered once... For entry into, acknowledgement of entry into the visible church and the Lord's Supper for renewal, covenant renewal. Okay? And then um, attending the call of the church to gather for the worship of God and for the government of the church. So whenever the church calls, unless there's an, a necessary duty to attend to that is prior existing or is. Um, you know, some sort of necessary or emergency or it's an act of mercy that needs to be dealt with urgently right then um, those, those would be the things that would potentially supersede a call to a symbol for worship or government but um, anybody have a problem with that and specifically also the idea of two services on the Lord's Day morning and evening service Wow. Okay. Okay. Am I awake? Okay. All right. So we're going to move to eight. Is that, was that a hand that was almost? No? Nope.
1: Yeah, so why don't you talk about, about the, the... I mean, I, you have talked about uh, worshiping, like the morning and evening service, kind of come back to... Uh, Practice in the temple, morning sure. uh, sacrifices, worship. Um, obviously, we're coming from a, a, a church that wasn't doing evening service. Wasn't uh, sure. convinced of that, and, um, and that could be questioned. Sure. <laughs> Um so not that it was. But uh uh So I guess maybe if you could just go over that again and explain how you guys came to convictional. I think when you started you weren't doing
0: it. That's right. That's right. So we started we did not do that. Um so one thing is we wrestled with it when we started to go through the directory of public worship put out by the Westminster Assembly because it calls for a morning and evening worship um, on the Lord's Day. And so the historic uh, Reformed position even before that, the Senate of Dort had also called for a morning and evening service. And they have this fascinating little piece of language that the, that the canons of Dort include which says, if even only the pastor and his family up here the reformed churches must have an evening worship service so this idea that even if everyone totally rejects the call that the officer the, that's preaching at least must come and bring his family and that it's it's necessary to have it because this idea that the morning and the evening worship being so important for the you know The possibility of the right worship in the land. So that's this interesting language. So that doesn't prove it, right? The councils can be in error, but it's an interesting thing that historically, that both the the Directory of Public Worship from the Westminster Assembly, which having a covenanted uniformity of worship and government was the principal purpose of the calling of the Westminster Assembly. So that was they put a ton of time into the Directory, and um, the canons of of Dort, including that uh, note about the council's interesting that it was engaged with, with the reformed church in its two most important councils across two generations in the sixteen hundreds. So that would make that made me pause and say, if I don't think this is clear, maybe I'm, you know, rejecting that work too quickly. And so I went and tried to look for it. And I went, okay, if I have to find proof for how often should we assemble, is there anything in the scriptures that ever established that? So Leviticus says the Sabbath is a holy day of convocation. And then it also gives the ordinary practice of morning and evening sacrifice every day, seven days a week in the temple. And on the Sabbath, there's an extra morning and evening offering. So the idea that there is already morning and evening worship every day, there's not a public assembly every day. The extra sacrifice or the extra worship is that public call it's a day of convocation of holy convocation which means con is with and vocation with calling so with calling to assemble okay and the, the calling to assemble did not require everybody to go to the temple because they were only required to go to the temple during the three mandatory feasts so that the assembling was assembling spread throughout so that's divine authorization for uh, for the synagogue and this idea of of daily of weekly worship on the Sabbath in the public assembly and Daniel when he's not in Jerusalem when he's um, in exile continues at the appointed times of prayer to pray towards the temple and so this idea of the appointed time for private or household worship is um, is continuing the morning and the evening even with the destruction of the temple there. Um, And so, the idea of morning evening worship, and then the idea of the public worship being morning and evening because the extra sacrifice is there. Then, we have the 92nd Psalm. And the 92nd Psalm is titled A Psalm for the Sabbath. And so, I encourage you to open up Psalm ninety two. And it seems to exposit the practice. So Psalm ninety two is a Psalm, a song for the Sabbath. It is good to give thanks to the Lord and to sing praises to your name, O Most High. To declare your loving kindness in the morning, and your faithfulness every evening. Now this in the morning and every evening. It's talking about again this is referring to sabbath days we're in the context of this we're talking about the sabbath day and then it says it gives context for this idea of the morning and evening worship it's declaring the loving kindness in the morning and your faithfulness in the evening and it says in verse three on an instrument of ten strings on the lute and on the harp with harmonious sound now where are musical instruments used in the worship of god They are not used in private worship. They are not used in household worship. They were only appointed to be used in the public worship with the offering of sacrifice. So this is public worship, morning and evening, with musical instrumentation associated with a sacrificing um, and the singing of psalms. And it's morning and evening. For you, Lord, have made me glad through your work I will triumph in the works of your hands. O Lord, how great are your works! Your thoughts are very deep. A senseless man does not know, nor does a fool understand this. When the wicked spring up like grass, and when all the workers of iniquity flourish, it is that they may be destroyed forever. But you, O Lord, are on high forevermore. For behold, your enemies, O Lord, for behold, your enemies shall perish. All the workers of iniquity shall be scattered. But my horn you have exalted like a wild ox, I have been anointed with fresh oil. My eye also has seen my desire on my enemies, my ears hear my desire on the wicked who rise up against me. The righteous shall flourish like a palm tree, he shall grow like a cedar in Lebanon. Those who are planted in the house of the Lord shall flourish in the courts of of our God. So the house of the Lord, the temple, the courts of our God, the public assembly, they shall still bear fruit in old age. They shall be fresh, or you can translate that as fat, and flourishing. To declare that the Lord is upright. He is my rock, and there is no unrighteousness in him. So the idea of, every, you know, of, of the morning and the evening, every Sabbath day, in the public worship, causes us to see the difference between the wicked and the righteous, right? the church and the world. And so we're seeing an assembly of the church separated from the world and this is done uh, with the flourishing of the righteous even when they're old in this public assembly and so I think that's that the psalm is teaching and, and just talking about this idea of public worship on the Sabbath morning and evening so any any thoughts about any of that or anything you'd push on
1: um, Yeah, I was just thinking about synagogues today still traditionally old worship there, there's a, a call To bring in the Sabbath, to start the Sabbath, I and mean, then there's a, there's a, um, a rejoicing before, at the end mm. for the Sabbath day and a closing out of the Sabbath. So um, it would be Friday night, Saturday night, and also Saturday morning. There we go. So actually, three times.
0: Sure. Morning and evening.
1: Start with evening, and morning, and evening.
0: Next day. So there's, this is a different matter that is not necessary for church membership, but trying to figure out, do we continue with the evening mm-hmm. and morning uh, with the setting of the sun and the rising of the sun as the time marker for the day, or is there something that occurred in the New Testament with midnight becoming the day? Acts 20 with it uh, might be, is it 20? Do you remember? It's Paul uh, about Ephesus, so it's around there. Might be like 18. I'll have to double check. So where, where he's preaching and they have the Lord's Supper, and somebody falls out the window when he's preaching, because he went long like I did today, and then the guy dies, and he resurrects him, right? There's a, they're going into the evening, and it's the next day he's traveling, so the Sabbath is ending, and why does he have a call to worship, and why do they gather until midnight? So, I think that's an approved change from, to the midnight to midnight, as there's this going out of the church to the world, but I'm not sure, and I would be cautious about trying to require that, but that's how, I have to pick something to base my practice off of, right? So I'm, I'm either evening to evening, or I'm going to be midnight to midnight, and I think that the Pauling example there shows a change to midnight to midnight, but I would certainly sit down and argue through it and listen to uh, alternate view on whether the creation order of evening to evening is still there.
1: Uh, in the history of the church, has gone Saturday night.
0: So I'm not aware of it, and that was something that was surprising to me, that it's not a thing. I mean, Seventh-day Adventists do that. Uh, they still use the old Sabbath, obviously. They do, but So there uh, are many in, and I don't think we have credible profession there, but I, so I'm not really aware of historical significant examples of it. Yeah? Um, we have this one
1: here. Valerie asked she was actually, wanted more in detail or in-depth discussion of exactly what you're talking about, but the changeover from the Jewish Sabbath to, to the, uh, from the last day of the week to the first day of the week. Uh, you're already kind of touching on this. I want to put it out there so that people take uh,
0: that discussion. Sure. Um, okay, so I've had to walk through this several times. So I have a document that I'm happy to share. Um that I think is about 20 pages long, (laughs) that has all of the significant verses associated with the Sabbath from the whole of the Bible. Um, And let me see if I can find that. Well, I can look for that and potentially come back to it Um, next week, um, I found it. Okay, so let me, let me give you, um. the key things that help to show the change of the day Um, in the Psalms well let me start with this Sabbath's the creation ordinance Okay, in Genesis 2 we have the Sabbath established and it carries on God rests from creation and enters into his providential governing Uh, John 5 Jesus says that The Father was working until now, so Jesus' life, and I have been working. So this is the idea that God, when he rested, didn't rest from all work. He rested from one type of work to enter into another kind of work. And so Sabbath is about resting from some things in order to do specific things, namely the worship of God. But God gave the example of stopping from creation to focus on providence. Now, the Exodus 16 has Sabbath being kept by the Hebrews before the giving of the law. When they're given manna and they're told to collect two portions on the day before the Sabbath. So the day of preparation principle for the day before the Sabbath is established uh you know before the giving of the law as well. Um, When we have the giving of the law in Exodus twenty, um we obviously have the fourth commandment to remember the Sabbath, and there's an appeal back to creation. In Deuteronomy um, well in Exodus 35 there's an emphasis on the Sabbath being uh, a day for the gathering of the congregation and to not do any work uh, Deuteronomy 5 restates the commandment to observe the Sabbath but it gives a different reason as opposed to appealing to creation it appeals to God having freed the people out of slavery and so this idea of a redemption out of slavery is used as the reason for the Sabbath so it's a change of reason which points us forward to the idea that God will, uh, can make changes about it. Um, and so this points us forward to an expectation that there will be a change based around redemption out of a type of slavery. And so the, the more full-fulfilling, as opposed to the type of being taken out of Egypt, the being taken out of the world, so to speak, being taken out of slavery to Pharaoh, slavery to Satan, um, and being put into the city of God under Christ, from flesh to spirit. Um, So the thing we need to remember is that God has authority over the Sabbath. Matthew 12.8 says that the Son of Man is Lord also of the Sabbath. Matthew 24.20 says that uh, Christians who are waiting to see the destruction of Jerusalem will see the destruction of Jerusalem after the resurrection, and they should pray that the flight is not in winter or on the Sabbath day. If there's no Sabbath after the resurrection of Christ, why would Christians care if the destruction of Jerusalem and surrounding of it by armies occurs on the Sabbath day? So there's a Christian Sabbath that's prophesied there. So then, um, when we get to Matthew 28, after the resurrection, the literal language of Matthew 28, verse 1 is, At the end of the Sabbaths, as it began to dawn towards the first of the Sabbaths, so you go from at the end of the Old Testament Sabbaths, the last day of the week, in the dawning into the next day, which is the first of the new Sabbaths. That's the literal language in Matthew 28, verse 1. Um, so that would be at the end of the Jewish Sabbaths it began to dawn towards the first of the Christian Sabbaths, would be a kind of modern way of putting it. You know, um, <coughs> We're told in Mark... One, that the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. Therefore the Son of Man is the Lord also of the Sabbath. The Sabbath is good for man. It's made for man. But what about human nature has changed that makes it so that Sabbath is no longer good for man? Um, so the Lord's Day. Revelation 1.10 says I was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. Uh, the That's a specific day that John, the Apostle, was doing something on that day, and he was in the Spirit on it. So, the Lord's Day. What is the Lord's Day? We've got to figure out what this is. Well, uh, Isaiah 58 talks about the Sabbath as the holy day of the Lord. Psalm 118, verse 22-24 says, This is the day the Lord has made, or appointed, Appointed is better. And that day is, it says, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. It was marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has appointed. We will rejoice and be glad in it. In Acts 4, the Apostle Peter explains that the day that the Lord had appointed is the day of the Lord, the the day of the resurrection and in psalm 2 we're told that the day he's resurrected is the day that he's begotten um, from the dead and acts 13 that gets interpreted um, as that day of that begottenness and we are told that The first day of the week is the day of the resurrection in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And we're told in Hebrews chapter 4, there remains therefore a Sabbath for the people of God. So, the Sabbath is a day of meeting. Leviticus 23 verse 3 is the one that says it's a day of holy convocation. Um, Numbers 28 talks about the two sacrifices morning and evening. Hebrews ten twenty five says to not forsake the assembly of the saints. So what day is that supposed to happen? It happens on the Lord's Day, which is the Christian Sabbath. And so the changing of the day of meeting, if there is an assembly, what day should it be held on? First Corinthians chapter sixteen, verse two says, When you assemble on the first day. So we, we are told that there's an assembly of the Christians as the church and that the people who are coming who have money to give to the contribution to help the church in jerusalem should give their money when they're already assembling together on the first day and that way there's not a need for extra collecting of the funds when paul gets there but rather there's this gradual as they're already meeting together you hand it over to the people who are holding the funds in trust when they're assembling on the first day so Acts 20 verse 7 the apostles, gather, the apostles gathered the church on the first day um, we see the breaking of bread occurring on the first day in terms of the there's two ways breaking of bread is referred to meals and hospitality and the public breaking of bread for the Lord's Supper um, so the, we remember that there's a creation origin there's a in Exodus 16 the, the Sabbath being kept before the giving of the law Exodus 20 gives us the Sabbath and says it relates to the creation. Deuteronomy 5 says there's the Sabbath and it relates to being freed out of slavery. And then we have Jesus taking us out of slavery to sin in his death and on the resurrection, there's this leading out of that death. And so that makes the Lord's day with the same sort of reason as the Deuteronomy 5 reason, but it's on a different day, the day of the Lord, the day that the uh, stone that was rejected became the chief cornerstone, the day that he was begotten, the day of the Lord, the Holy Day of the Lord, the Lord's Day. So, I have more about that, but I want to not overspend time on it. Is that... Great. Yes, Mr. Curtis. Great. Sounds good. I'll share that. So, it's more of a collection of quotes than a paper, but there's
1: also the idea of six days work and rest on the seventh.
0: yes, that's great
1: work done so that that God's original work of creation was completed on Sabbath day Friday night to Saturday night and then the final work of redemption completed in the resurrection of Christ and so therefore resting on the first day of the week and the eighth day
0: Yes, thank you. The eighth-day Sabbath idea is is a great and important thing, and the idea of circumcision being for the eighth day, you know, pointing forward. The idea of the eighth day, I think, is an important marker that points forward, Um, and the idea of of working six, resting one, the Puritans. So there was a controversy in England, and what you end up with is the Lutherans in Germany and the Anglicans in in, in Britain both have a, a normative principle view of worship and church government, okay? So the Puritans and the Continental Reformed held to a regulated principle view of government and also to worship, and so they were concerned about the government not being able to just call holy days whenever. And so, therefore, calls to worship needed to occur either on the Sabbath or they needed to occur on arising cases for specific providential thanksgiving or specific fasting as some great negative thing occurs and asking God to alleviate some danger. So, providential occurrences or the Sabbath, as opposed to a liturgical calendar. And so, the Puritans said, and the Continental Reform tended to say, the idea that work six days and, and rest for one in seven, it's, it's, it's a, not an ordinal statement about six followed by one, it's a proportional statement. Six out of seven, and then the seventh, the last seventh, is something that has to be given. And that could be the first or the last in the old covenant it was the last in the new covenant the new administration has it as the first and so the idea that we look back we start the week with the christian sabbath because we look back to the redemption that's already been accomplished as opposed to looking forward to the redemption that's been accomplished and having been redeemed we work out of gratitude to fulfill the dominion mandate and the great commission to fill the earth with the knowledge of god as the waters cover the sea so that building off of what we just said about the the principle, that's the Puritan principle, and the international reformed held to that view. That's captured in the Heidelberg as well. So, thank you. Okay, anything else about the Sabbath day before we move off?
1: Well, the last thing would be an argument against that last sure. thing, which would be the whole idea of Sabbath, which is seventh. So, being at the end.
0: With the word, the word can be ordinal or can be a proportional. So, it can be like fractional seventh. As opposed to ordinal seventh. Mm, okay. Find that unpersuasive? That's what the person said. <laughs> that's
1: that's uh, yeah. I, I don't know. I, I mean, I have to look at that. Sure. If that, if that's how it's actually used. I mean, I could just want to make that argument. Sure. <laughs> but sure. Just,
0: you know, is that a stretch or not? I don't know. Sure. So okay. So then. Um, anything else before we move off? Great. Then, how are we in time? What time are we supposed to finish this one by when we started late? Just a stop at, so the other one's supposed to be done at 11, 15 11 30 we're gonna start at this at 11.30, so that would put us at, one, three, tw- what's that? We for minutes. Okay, but I've gotta, I know you have an obligation. Not okay, okay. So if go if we go till one o'clock, we good? Everybody good on that? okay great um all right so back to the covenant document so eight uh, do you promise to glorify god by seeking to act according to the knowledge of the truth as revealed in the moral law, which is the whole duty that God requires of man, is summarized by the two great commandments, is summarily comprehended in the Ten Commandments, and is explained accurately in the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Okay, two great commandments. Love God, love neighbor. How do you love God? Know and acknowledge him as God. Worship him in the way he's appointed. Use his name properly, with the right motive, with integrity, as opposed to using it hypocritically. So use the things he's used, use his ordinances, uh, that by which he reveals himself, use those things uh, in a manner with integrity um, as opposed to hypocritically. And then the Sabbath to order time gives us proportion to worship. And the fourth commandment would give us work six days, rest one, and the idea of of morning and evening worship being a part of that, private worship, household worship being subsumed inside of that, but the Sabbath being the big marker for time that God has instituted for worship. He's given a proportionality. So how do we love neighbor? Honoring lawful authority and serving in our places appropriately. Not murdering, but seeking to preserve life and extend it. Uh, Not committing adultery, but putting pleasure in its lawful place with moderation. Not Eighth commandment, not stealing, but instead working to have something to share. Ninth commandment, not bearing false witness, but instead speaking the truth to our neighbor and seeking to advance our own reputation and the reputations of other, unless duty calls to deal with harming the reputation by lawful witness bearing. And tenth commandment, being content with our own condition, uh, not coveting, desiring the good of our neighbor, Weeping with him when he weeps, rejoicing with him when he rejoices, seeking the glory of God rather than making things uh, in a disorderly affection. That's how we love our neighbor. Um, So the Shorter Catechism explains the meaning of those commandments. And so has everyone here read the Shorter Catechism on the Ten Commandments? Okay. So did anybody see anything that was in any way concerning to them in terms of reading it? Okay, so I'm going to read the one that typically people balk at, Sabbath. Question 58, what is required in the fourth commandment? The fourth commandment requires the keeping holy to God such set times as he has appointed in his word, expressly one whole day in seven, to be a holy Sabbath to himself. 59, which day of the seven has God appointed to be the weekly Sabbath? From the beginning of the world to the resurrection of Christ, God appointed the seventh day of the week to be the weekly Sabbath and the first day of the week ever since to continue to the end of the world, which is the Christian Sabbath. Sixty. How is the Sabbath to be sanctified? The Sabbath is to be sanctified by a holy resting all that day, even from such worldly employments and recreations as are lawful on other days and spending the whole time in the public and private exercises of God's worship, except so much as is to be taken up in the works of necessity and mercy. 61. What is forbidden in the fourth commandment? The fourth commandment forbids the omission or careless performance of the duties required, and the profaning the day by idleness or doing that which is in itself sinful, or by unnecessary thoughts, words, or works about our worldly employments or recreations. What are the reasons annexed to the fourth commandment? The reasons annexed to the fourth commandment are God's allowing us six days of the week for our own employments, his challenging a special propriety or ownership, in the seventh, his own example, and his blessing the Sabbath day. All right. And I'm going to move off of Vow 8 unless there's any further questions about it. You're not saying you do perfectly keep you're not saying you will perfectly keep you're committing to strive to do that and when you fail you're swearing that you will repent and the idea of the lord's supper is if you have sin unrepented of that you repent of it before coming to the lord's table and if you have an offense against somebody else you seek to resolve it before coming to the table and The idea that when you're taking the Lord's Supper, you are re-covenanting to do that. And so, this uh, re-covenanting to strive to act according to the knowledge of the truth. Okay, I'm going to move to vow nine. Do you promise to glorify God by seeking to spread the knowledge of the truth by engaging in and supporting evangelism and discipleship in the whole counsel of God? Providing a Christian education for your household. Tithing to the church. And cooperating with others in the church in order to fill the earth with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. So, engaging in evangelism is you evangelizing. Engaging in discipleship is you discipling. Supporting evangelism is helping others to do it. Supporting discipleship is helping others to do it. Providing Christian education for your household. If you have children or people who are under your authority, your duty is to disciple, but also, specifically children, you must give a Christian education as opposed to handing them over to pagans or to secularists to be educated. There are some awful situations where people have some sort of a court order where they have to do something and special work has to be done to deal with that and there is no lawful obligation to obey the court when it tells you to do something wicked. We either choose to deal with, you know, a robber comes up to you and says give me your wallet. It's not a sin to hand him your wallet. But with the children there becomes a question of if the state says give me your children, is it sin to comply? And so that's something that's difficult to work through here. And the idea of how do you deal with people who have some sort of a divorce arrangement or whatever that makes it so there's an obligation for kids to go to public school. I think it's our duty to try to figure out how to stop that. I think that it's our duty to help to provide a Christian education Um, as a church. the, The household has that obligation. The head of house has that obligation. Fighting in the courts to try to stop it. We can support that. It is the duty of the church to help to fight that. And so the coffers of the church, if necessary, should be spent helping to deal with legal battles to keep the children out of the godless schools and put them into Christian schools or put them into household homeschooling. And so this idea of being willing to fight and that we are willing to put resources into it. Um, if necessary, if there's a widow, one of the ba- if you have the baptismal covenant, the baptismal covenant includes if the head of house dies the duty the church takes the duty to help to make sure that the widow does not starve does not go naked does not go without home um, and to do the same for the children and to make sure that the children can get a Christian education so when we baptize a child we're swearing that to that child now to help this work to be done The tithing to the church is established by the law of God. Tithing, we first see with Abraham tithing to Melchizedek, and then we see Jacob swearing to God that he will tithe if God does something for him. And swearing something to God, you should only do if the law already establishes it as a good work. And so tithing, we have this this patriarchal example of tithing as a good work with Melchizedek and to God directly by Jacob and then it is established in the law, in the Mosaic law, the tithing. And it's something that's before the temple, it's during the temple, and when the temple's gone, the need for money to deal with the administration of these things doesn't go away. We still have to deal with the poor, the widow, and the orphan. We still have to not muzzle the ox when he treads out the grain. And we have to deal with paying for the things we need for the administration of these things and dealing with the building our a place to meet. And so those are the same expenses that were covered with the temple. So the nature of things has not changed. Instead, there's a decentralization. So it doesn't go to one centralized thing. It goes to the particular local church. And so that money is to be used for the blessing of the people of God in their poverty, for rewarding those who engage in public office and service, and for the paying for the things for the public work to be done. Now, there's a commitment to not only give of money and to pursue this work, but to work together. We commit our time and talent to work with others in the church in order to fill the earth with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And we were reading about that today in Romans 12 in terms of organizing our giftings and using them to work together. So, comments, questions, objections? Bow nine. March. Is there a, um, a method to track
1: for, um, help people or would be up to them uh, for specifically evangelizing
0: and in their own lives? Yeah, so that's a good question. So we don't have a method we've employed for tracking that. Um, the discipleship that pastorally that I follow up on is I follow up with heads of house about are you discipling your children, are you discipling your wife, are you guys working together? Is there a way you can use your gifting? Um, I encourage hospitality, and I say hospitality is the principal place where you have power to be able to disciple more. The woman wisdom you know, invites people in. So you use your wealth to give hospitality to display, but also to teach. Because you're saying, you're saying, I'm giving you a meal, give me your ear. Um, and so that, the idea that whenever you're interacting with people, you should basically be engaging in discussion of the truth. Um, is that's how fellowship works? That's how discipling works. That's how evangelism works, right? Doing which of the three are you doing when you're with other people? <laughs> are you working together to accomplish things for the glory of God? Are you one of you teaching the other? Which is you know, maybe there's fellowship in that, um, and then is there evangelism? You know, are you taking an enemy and loving them, and trying to make them a friend? Um, so. I don't have a tracking mechanism um, but I do think Tim Challies wrote a book he's a pastor, a Canadian pastor he's kind of Calvinistic Baptist I wouldn't say Reformed Baptist I don't know if he's like London Baptist Confession or anything like that but he has a little booklet called Do More Better Um, and he talks about doing kind of a self-assessment on your areas of life and your relationships and trying to think about how are you trying to honor God with those relationships Um, and so when you're thinking about your tasks, he talks about four principal dominion tools that you need to like organize work. He's like, okay, you need a list to write stuff down. What should I do? And you can organize that list into areas and relationships, but the basic level, it's a list. You need a calendar to mark down when you're going to do stuff, and if it's not on your calendar, if you get busy, it's not going to happen. right? And so that means that when you've got relationships that matter have recurring things on the calendar. Um, he talks about the idea that you need to have a place where you keep important information. So he talks about like you know OneNote or Evernote or you know you can use Google Docs, whatever. It's just a place where you store stuff. It could be a notebook, right? Um, and then the idea of a communication device. You know, is that email? Is that a phone? Is that texting? Whatever. But how do you deal with the ins and outs? So those four tools: list, calendar, information collection, and communication, are the tools to get stuff done. Um, and he gives recommendations of ways to organize and stuff like that. So. I think the idea, you need to do that in self-rule, and if you're not managing yourself and prioritizing tasks and things that you're not going to do it, and discipleship is, is key inside of that, um, so I think I'm talking around your question and not really addressing it directly, and so maybe we can improve that. Any any follow-up on that or any thoughts? Uh, yeah, that sounds good. Um, I know at WS they had a quarterly.
1: Um, uh, orally hmm
0: Any thoughts about that, Mr. Marsh?
1: HCC discontinued. Uh. Um, uh, we can talk further about
0: it. I, I, there, there were a lot of issues with it. Okay. In ways. Okay. Great. Um, good question. Thank you, Ms. Marsh. Anything else? Okay, so next time we'll be talking about uh, question 10, about 10 and we'll be looking at and discussing um, we'll be discussing the last section of the Shorter Catechism, so 82 through 107 um, The With the last few minutes that I've got here, since we all committed to one haha. Um, what I want to do is do a flyover of the Ten Commandments just a little bit more and so to make sure that it's clear what you are covenanting into. So, um, so there's the triple obligation, which we talked about last time. God is God. He made us. He owns us. He is our covenant God. We're in covenant with him, so there's increased obligation. And he's our redeemer. He specifically saved us from our sin. So he bought us, and so he owns us again. So it's by creation, by covenant, and by redemption. Okay? So that triple obligation... Um, and gratitude for being redeemed out of slavery to sin and satan and the world uh, should help us to in the first commandment question 45 uh, have no other gods before him and so this requires us to know god and to acknowledge god so god is the good he's the highest good he is to be sought we possess him by knowing him right so We possess God by knowing Him. So the good for man, as a rational creature, is to know God, to have the knowledge of God, and so we you want to increasingly realize how He is the good, and how He benefits you as you know Him, and how glorifying Him is your good. So we worship and glorify God as the only God and as the true God and as our God. Um, We are forbidden, question forty-seven from denying or failing to worship or failing to glorify the true God as God and as our God. And we're forbidden to give that worship or glory to anything else because it's only due to him. So the first commandment is about this idea of knowing God as the goal um, and showing the knowledge of God, filling the earth with the knowledge of God. And so, The words before me, question 48, teach us that God sees all things, takes notice of, and is much displeased pleased with the sin of having any other God. When we value anything above God, that is now our God. The highest thing, the highest value in our life is our God. All sin is ultimately a sin of disorder of valuation. So you in your mind have false beliefs that make you think Your happiness depends upon X, Y, or Z as opposed to Yahweh. And X, Y, and Z are not more important to your happiness than Yahweh. And that false belief, you choose those things out of that false belief over Yahweh. And so false beliefs are the thing to be subdued. We must take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. And so your goal is to grow in the knowledge of God. Any place you have sin, you can undermine that sin by believing the truth and seeing the falsehoods and it makes it easier and easier to be able to overcome those things. You have to rehabituate yourself because there are you train your body, like it's easier to do things when you train and it's easier to do righteous actions when you train and so you think about this, if you, if you have a misvaluation in your mind and you think, God's oh, it's more valuable than this thing that I want It's not God. And then you go, oh, it's hard to get God. And that difficulty, because of our foolishness and changeableness, makes it so that we can see the valuation tip for a brief period of time in which that sin occurs. Now, we are in a constant state of sinning in the sense that we have constantly got false ideas that we are believing. But outward actions are not always sinful. So we can be blameless in not doing anything that we can demonstrate is sin while still having continuous inward sin and the goal of reducing the inward sin by having more truth and less falsehood that we are believing is the means by which we seek to have more consistency in our outward speaking and doing and so the knowledge of God is that by which words and actions are changed to be in accordance with the knowledge of God so anything about the first commandment before I move on Okay, second commandment, um, not making images of God and not worshiping them. God's invisible. Making an image of God is communicating a lie. And so man is the image of God. The soul, the mind, the, 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 the spirit, uh, we are the image of God is our rationality. And so the second commandment is, requires us to use the means that god has appointed and not invent means to worship god when we use the means he's appointed it teaches us about the invisible god so think about word sacrament and prayer word teaches us it communicates propositions from the mind of god to us the sacrament is actually an image it's an appointed image god has given us bread and wine to symbolize jesus drawings of jesus are a counterfeit so when we have the sacrament it's a visible word it contains sim- it's a symbol that contains meaning and the meaning is what the words say in the scriptures so it represents the covenant of grace baptism is also a visible symbol water that washes okay so these are visible symbols if these were not appointed by God, these would just be idols. And so, the use of what God has appointed in worship and not making things up, not adding to or subtracting from, keeping pure and entire what God has appointed in his word. Yes? Um, we were
1: just talking about uh-
0: So that's that's an interesting question. So the baptism does have an emphasis on the Holy Spirit, the pouring out of the Spirit, right? Uh, The idea of being uh, baptized in the Holy Spirit. You see that kind of language. Um, I think that it is important to view, um, when you think about the Lord's Supper, it's important to think about uh, God the Father electing and sending Christ. It's important to think about Christ accomplishing our redemption And it's important to think about the Holy Spirit applying that redemption to us. And so I think thinking about all of them in terms of a Trinitarian way, you think about the Trinity's association with each. Uh, And so like when we get to prayer, right, specifically the Father uh, being the one we're praying to, the Son being the mediator through which we pray, and the Spirit being the one who's empowering and enlightening us to pray properly, right? And so with the Word, we think about the Word, and Christ is the Word, um, but at the same time... uh, Obviously, the unity of the divinity of the Trinity is poet. Is, sorry. So, the, uh, the the unity of the divinity of the Trinity is manifest in the Word, and so we have this kind of explanation of each, right? And so the revelation of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. But there's an emphasis on the Son because the Son's reign and the visibility of his reign and his work. We magnify the Father by magnifying the Son, and then. The Spirit is magnified in that, uh, but there's sort of an emphasis on the Son um, in all of them. Um, and so there's this uh, explicitness about Christ uh, in all of them that is the way that the economy of the Trinity has been set up to, to bring glory to the whole. Um, so, does that answer your question? Yeah. Okay, so um, we as Puritan have been very concerned about the second commandment because the church at large seems to have made it a meaningless commandment. And so you look at um, question 52, what are the reasons annexed to the second commandment? The reasons annexed to the second commandment are God's sovereignty over us, his propriety in us, and the zeal he has to his own worship. The words of the commandment are, are pretty remarkable, right? He, God's sovereign over us, He owns us, and He has a zeal for His worship. So look, look at the words of the commandment itself. Um, you shall not make unto yourselves any graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down yourself nor serve them. You shall not bow down yourself to them nor serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. So here's the jealousy of God, his zeal for his worship. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me. Right? There's a curse three and four generations. So you want to avoid something that's going to have a multi-generational negative impact? Like Very few things you do are going to have an impact across three or four generations. This is one of them. Don't commit idolatry. Don't worship God wrongly. You want a positive impact? Well, read this. To the third and fourth generation of them that hate me, and showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. What's the them? There we go. That's right. Generations. The pronoun them is referring back to that last noun, generations. So the curse goes to the third and fourth generation. The blessing goes to thousands of generations. So you want work that's going to last? Anything you're going to do in your life is going to last a thousand generations? Worship God rightly. So that power of worshiping God rightly. And that's why the Apostle Paul says, even when people preach Christ in pretense, if they're using the right doctrine when they're preaching, they have the forms, and God can use people preaching truth in pretense to convert people and to gather the church. So... Um, I'm going to move to the third commandment unless there's anything else. Okay. Just one. Oh, Go ahead. I did have a. So there was
1: something that kind of stuck out on the second uh, commandment portion 49.
0: No, that's great. So the Bible is full of this triple reference. It talks about heaven, earth, and water. Okay? So you see in the creation, you have creation of the heavens, the earth, and the water. You see in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, um, and the spirit hovered over the waters. Okay? And so you see with the temple, there's heavens, with the tabernacle, there's heaven, earth, water being symbolized. You see the same thing in the temple. And so this is kind of all of creation being a temple. And so don't take anything in the temple and use it as an image to worship as god and so when god makes the temple he has the ark of the covenant with the mercy seat In the mercy seat it's like this throne on the top of the ark and you've got these angels that are at the feet of the ark and you know on the mercy seat you know what's sitting there nothing it's invisible and so where you'd have the image, where you'd have the idol sitting like on this throne, this grand thing, the whole temple you lead in, you walk in, and in the place where you expect the idol to be nothing. And so it's not making images of things like angels cuz that was literally, you know, part of the setup. Um, and there's, you know, pomegranates and other things that are that are Im- that are made, there are images of it in the temple. So that's not what's being forbidden. What's being forbidden is taking them and using them as symbols of God. That's a good question. Thanks. Okay, one o'clock. That's all. You just need those two commandments. The rest of them are kind of optional. (laughs) You read the shorter catechism, so you got a sense of it. I'm trying to give it to you. Use this with integrity, use them in the time order appointed. Don't murder each other. Uh Oh honor legitimate authority don't commit adultery don't steal work hard don't lie don't bear false witness protect each other's reputation and don't hate each other and covet and weep with each other lots of crime so thank you all thank you. <laughs> absolutely uh, everyone's free to go so the class is over two questions, so. sure thing
1: Um I had a recent issue with myself for my mom, she's actually an and so she doesn't respect in any way she replied because she's originally and so uh how do you how do you keep how honor your mother with your father they are such a
0: Great question. So all authority is granted through the covenant structures God has established. The four legitimate covenant structures are the individual with your dominion authority that you have, the household, the church, and the state. Now, with the household, um, parents have authority over children until they are sent out of the house to no longer be a part of the household. Typically, that occurs by either sending off a son to do some sort of good work and commissioning him to start his own house or in marriage the ordinary course is marriage okay so in in genesis it talks about leaving and cleaving so the leaving and cleaving are not separated by time there's a a leaving in covenanting with the wife and then the sign of marriage in terms of the one flesh symbol and so the that is supposed to typically be the way in which you leave a household Now, in our society, lots of people leave their parents' households without marriage, and so there's this kind of, that's the way things have been done all over the place. So, but whether the sending off was done properly, there's a separating, and there's no longer a view of economic responsibility or anything like that. So the honoring takes on a general sense of behaviors that you would do to seek to uh, show that you care for the person and to seek to avoid uncovering unnecessarily their failures and to seek to, where possible, give signs of honor. So uh, standing when they come into your presence. Um, the idea of, of seeking to serve in ways that are possible while you're around them. Now, one of the things that's also not talked about much is covenant death. So um, the individual is covenantally dead before God by any sin. And we are given life covenantly by Christ as our Redeemer, and so we have life in standing before God, and we are in good covenant standing because of the work of Christ. In the household, criminal-type activities or covenant breaches are the things that give covenant death. So um, infidelity in marriage, uh, abandoning of the covenant duties, are cause for divorce, which makes it so that the obligations of marriage are, are ended by a covenant death. Uh, Someone could literally die, which would cause a death in that covenant. Um, Children, if they strike their parents, if they curse their parents are in covenant death. Um, And so they could be theoretically restored, but there are actions that disinherit. Um, And when parents fail in their duties by covenantal breach in a way that is of a similar sort of magnitude, and so i go into more details about that, uh, they also create covenant death. And so you'll have children who might be emancipated and leave early, or who are made wardens of somebody else, or uh, are adopted, something like that. Right. So you have, you have the ability for there to be covenant death there. So the specific situation, I'd be happy to talk to you about in a more private se- setting about dealing with that, but so there may be Ongoing obligations, or there may be covenant death, uh, but if you're still interacting and you don't find it to be dangerous, or you think there's not some sort of you know perfectly you know evil things that are you ongoing or whatever, you, we we talk about that. But so my point is just that there are ways of thinking about that that are that require analysis of the particular situation, and the idea of covenant death in the household is an important part of thinking about that. So, okay, any follow up on that or? So just to kind of clarify, it's, yeah. um, if, if, for
1: example what saying is parent is failing on their behalf of the covenant, then it's kind of like family
0: family. right. So if there's unrepentant, ongoing sin of certain varieties, so uh, then that would do it. Also, even if it's repentant, there might be, you know, in the sense of the household obligation, there can be a potential ending. Um, but also the dif- there's a difference between adult children who have their own household and children that are a part of the household. Um, and so those, those are the nuances that had to be worked through and, and talked about for the particular situation. Okay, great, so good question. Great. All right, well, thank you all.